So we've been in this series going through First and Second Samuel. It's really one book, and so we've been doing it together, just one right after the other. And we've been in it for a number of weeks. I mean, today is week, what, 23. We've been taking our time mostly to try to cover each individual self-contained lesson that's in this sequence of books, that's in this, in this book. And today is the first time that we're going to try to cover a massively long section. Ordinarily, when I go through books of the Bible, I try to deal with big sections of the text because I think it's much more important usually for us to get the big picture than it is for us to get the trees. You know, we want the forest, the trees can be filled in later. You know, we want to get the idea, the big picture. And the big picture of the books of Samuel is that God is chasing us. God is hunting us down. He's on a pursuit for us. One of the key verses that I've mentioned multiple times, I won't put it up on the screen again, but I've mentioned it multiple times where God says to Samuel that he is looking for a man who's after his own heart. God is looking for you if you are looking for him. God is pursuing you if you are pursuing him. That's the way God works. He's a God of relationship. He's not just a God of information. He's not just a God of getting things right. He's not going to give you a list of things and then you do those things and then he's happy with you. He has a desire for relationship. And last week, we saw this vividly displayed in this particular verse. It's 2 Samuel 14, 14. I'll put it up here. It's a a woman who is speaking to King David and she's describing something about God. She says, like water spilled on the ground which cannot be recovered, so we must die. And that's the sad part of what she was saying because David was in a dark and kind of a a discouraged place uh, last week. And so she was talking about how we're all going to be like water that just dissolves into the ground. But she says, but that's not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. The Bible word for that is called reconciliation. God is a God who wants relationship. He doesn't want you to just dissolve into nothing. He doesn't want you to just be, you know, forgotten. He has a plan, a heart for you. And he wants to draw you and me towards himself. He is always a God who is trying to build relationship. Now, to give you the story of where that happened last week, just to remind you a little bit, what happened last week is that we saw King David, who had previously committed a grievous sin by raping a woman named Bathsheba, getting her pregnant, killing her husband, and then later marrying her. And so this whole thing that David did really displeased God. He was not happy with this thing whatsoever. And so then David, when he found out that God wasn't happy with him, he got all... He confessed his sin, but he didn't deal with his sin. And this is really important. He confessed his sin to God. He asked God to cleanse him. He responded to God properly at that time. But there's nothing that he did after that to try to really resolve the heart condition in himself or to resolve the long-term impact of his sin in the life of people around him. And the reason we know that is that last week, the story we looked at involves David's oldest son raping a half-sister of his, one of David's daughters, and then the other son, son number three, was mad at son number one, and so son number three murdered son number one. And so in that story last week, we again saw a violation of a woman and we saw a murder. 
It was a repetition of what had happened in David's own life, and now it's happening in his kids. And so that happened last week. Well, son number three, his name is Absalom. He killed some son number one named Amnon, and Absalom then goes on the run. And he's the one that this woman said God wanted to bring back because the banished person shouldn't stay banished forever. God is a God of reconciliation, so we should somehow find a way to reconcile with Absalom even though he's a murderer. Bring him back, rehabilitate him somehow. That's what the point of last week was all about. David hadn't dealt with his sin, and so his sin came back to roost in his family. Well, I also told you that it was going to get worse, and today is the day that you hear the story of it getting worse. Now, in order to get it started, we have to start in chapter 14. I told you we'd be going from 15 through 20, but we actually have to start with something that shows up in chapter 14. And this is a thing I skipped over last week. It's a little uh, snippet of facts about Absalom. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to narrate to you all of the big plot points, but I'm going to put a couple verses up on the screen as we go through it so that you can kind of see it. There are going to be a lot of names that you're going to hear. I might forget what some of the names are. Like, I think I've got them all straight, but I might forget one when we get there, so we're going to do our best. This is going to feel academic. It's going to feel a little bit like you're in school. So if you want to take notes, go ahead and take notes. There will not be a final exam. I mean, not by me, anyway. Um, Anyway, so uh, Absalom, in chapter 14, we learn about him that he is handsome. I'm calling him Absalom the Handsome because you need to know he's not just handsome. He is way handsome. And you should never, at least in our media-saturated world, you should never underestimate the power of pretty. If Absalom were alive today, he would almost certainly be an Instagram influencer or a full-on movie star, because that's who this guy was. Let me read you this passage from 2 Samuel 14, one of the most ludicrous passages in the Bible. I kid you not. There are so many times in the Bible where I'm like, you need to read the Bible because it's funny. We're going to get two of them today. We're going to get two of them today. One of them is just like, oh my goodness, I can picture this in a Mel Brooks movie. Some of you are too young to know who Mel Brooks is. That's fine with me. Anyway, some of you, it's like, it's like this should be in a movie like that. But here we go. 2 Samuel 14, this is what it says. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Wherever, whenever he cut the hair of his head, oh, he used to cut his hair once a year because it became too heavy for him, he would weigh it, and its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. Now, I don't have my footnote here, but 200 shekels, let's see if I can find out what it is. 200 shekels is about five pounds, okay? So uh, Absalom, when he would cut his hair, he would cut off five pounds of hair. And I'm like, why did you tell me this story? In, in 2 Samuel 14, why do I need to know that this guy has such a, what is it, Fabian? He's got such, such luscious locks of hair. Why do I need to know that? Aha, uh-huh. it's going to come back. You'll see, it's going to come back and it's going to be amazing. But anyway, we've got to move on. So the first part of the story is that Absalom is handsome. You've got to know. Don't ever underestimate the power of pretty. The next plot point you need to know is that Adam, excuse me, Absalom stole the hearts of Israel. And I'll tell you how he did it. This is fascinating. First, what he does is after he makes his way back into Jerusalem, 
And after he's no longer in exile, after he's no longer in house arrest, he's free to get up and, and move around, what he does is he collects for himself an entourage of people and chariots. And he goes to the gate of Jerusalem, the front entrance to Jerusalem. And every time someone comes to the city of Jerusalem, he asks them, because he's so handsome, everybody wants to talk to him. And he asks them, tell me why you're coming into this great city of Jerusalem. And if the people say, we're coming in because we would like an audience with King David, Absalom has his opportunity. And he says this to them. He says, oh, David's too busy for you right now. If only, if only there were someone that he would appoint to be like a judge for his people who could hear the complaints of his people and respond appropriately. If only King David would appoint someone else to be this kind of leader, then maybe your problem could get solved. But I'm sorry, David can't see you. Bye now. And then he would give them a hug and a kiss. And as they would leave, all these people would be so entranced by Absalom's grace, his beauty, and how kindly he treated them, and how poorly David treated them, frankly, that they would leave and have their hearts attached to Absalom. Now remember, David is Absalom's dad. And so Absalom is not only lying about the king, he's lying about his dad. But that leads to the second thing that Absalom does. Eventually, he has enough people who love him wide enough around the whole land of Israel that he makes an announcement. He sends out a message to everybody, and he says this, I'm going to Hebron, which was a very important place back in ancient uh, Hebrew culture. Hebron was one of the places where kings were crowned to be king. In fact, Hebron was where David was first the king before he moved to Jerusalem. And so Absalom goes to Hebron and he sends a message throughout the whole land and he says, when you hear trumpets play, wherever you are, yell out, Absalom is king in Hebron. Let's just announce it. We didn't win the election. Let's just pretend we won. Okay. That's what Absalom is saying. He's saying, we're going to go to Hebron and we're just going to be the king. That's what we're going to do. Just announce it. Let's see how many people can believe it. And so he does. He goes to Hebron, he announces it, and crazy enough, almost the entire country believes it. Next, the third plot point is that David runs away. He flees. Now, I'd I'd love to read you this passage because it is so confusing, but it's long and the confusing parts are in the details. And so I'll try to unpack it for you a little bit. David is in Jerusalem, right? Absalom is in Hebron, right? David has the entire army of Jerusalem in Jerusalem with him, right? Absalom has a few chariots and a few people. We're we're told he has like 200 men. He's got like 200 men in Hebron, and he announces in Hebron that he's the king, and David, who is in Jerusalem, decides to give up. In fact, in this chapter, David refers to Absalom as King Absalom. Absalom has been king in the announcement of the people for just a moment. And David refers to Absalom as king. Something is going on in David's heart and in his mind, and we have no idea what because the narrator doesn't give us the inside scoop of what's going on inside David's head. But as soon as David hears that Absalom has declared himself to be the king, he packs up everything and he leaves. And what's interesting is that some people go with him, 
Some people stay behind, and some people he pushes away. I listed off some of the people. So there are 10 women that are his, his concubines. They're members of his harem. And he leaves them back to guard the palace. Now, um, this is weird because God had already predicted that there would be a time in David's life when his own wives were going to be violated by his enemy. And here David is intentionally leaving 10 of his wives back in the palace rather than taking them with him. I don't know what that's all about because after all, how are 10 women going to protect the palace if David himself is too scared and he runs away from the palace? I don't understand what's going on here. It doesn't make any sense. But he leaves 10 women behind. Then there's a man named Ittai. Ittai is one of the major warriors and he stays with David. In fact, he follows David, and David says to Atai, go back to your family. You shouldn't be with me. And Atai says, are you nuts? I'm sticking with you. So Atai and a couple other people that aren't mentioned here, a guy named um, Joab is also going to be with him, and then Joab's brother is going to stay with him as well. So he's got major warriors who are staying with David. But then there's this guy named Ziba. You might have forgotten who Ziba is. Ziba is the caretaker of the estate of a guy named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is Saul, King Saul's grandson. He's got wounds in his feet. He's crippled somehow. And Ziba is now taking care of him. But he shows up to David and he's telling lies. He says, David, Mephibosheth thinks that you should be destroyed. Mephibosheth thinks that your kingdom should go over to your son. And David is just so distraught. He says to Ziba, okay, fine, you can take all of Mephibosheth's property. And so then Ziba leaves. And then you've got this guy named Zadok. Zadok is the priest of the whole land. And when he finds out that David is leaving, Zadok gets the ark and the other priests, and they start following David out of the city. Because where the king of God goes, so does the ark of God right? And so as David is leaving, the rightful king, as he's leaving, Zadok brings the ark and he's on his way. And David says to Zadok, he says, listen, go back. I shouldn't have the ark with me. I shouldn't have you with me. You take your son, you take your grandsons and you just go back. And so David pushes the ark away. He's got the priest with him, but he pushes the ark away. And then we get this guy named Shimei. And Shimei is standing on the sides. And again, it's a funny story. He's standing on the side of the road, and he's got pebbles in his hands. And he's throwing pebbles at David and all the other people with David, but throwing pebbles at him, and he's yelling curses. And he's like, David, you should be deposed. You should get out of here. And he's just throwing, he's pelting him with rocks. And the the soldier, Joab, the, the warrior is like, listen, we should kill this guy. He's totally cursing you. And David's like, no, it might be what God wants. If God wants me to come back, he'll bring me back, but it might be what God wants. I'm just going to leave. And then he leaves. And then at the very bottom, there's this other little thing, Mount of Olives, where David goes after he leaves Jerusalem is to a place called the Mount of Olives. And I find it so interesting that a king who is in the midst of being betrayed, goes to the Mount of Olives. And there at the Mount of Olives, he spends a moment in prayer. But rather than David going back into the place of his rightful kingdom, Jerusalem, David will then continue leaving. And he will continue walking away. He goes to the place of the Mount of Olives and he's pushed everybody away from him except the soldiers. They're stuck with him because they just keep coming. They will not leave. But David pushes everybody away from him and he moves along. The next part of the story. Absalom 
listens to a guy named Ahithophel, and he also listens to a guy named Hushai. I'll give you a quick story about this. So Absalom's uh, first counselor is a guy named Ahithophel, who is David's counselor. But when Absalom becomes king, Ahithophel leaves David and he goes to Absalom. And Ahithophel was really smart. He's really wise. And so he tells Absalom what Absalom needs to do. And he says, Absalom, here's what you do. We will put a tent on the top of the palace and I will bring the women who are still here in the palace, David's wives, his concubines, I will bring them up to you one at a time. And you will sleep with them on the roof of the palace so the entire city of Jerusalem can see how you are violating David's wives. Doesn't that sound like a great idea? I mean, Ahithophel's wisdom is just unfathomable, right? No, it's, it's gross, it's hideous, it's horrible. But that's what Absalom does. He listens to Ahithophel's advice. He does this. He violates these women. It's terrible. And so then he comes back down after all that stuff is done. He then meets up with Ahithophel again and he says, okay, now what should I do? And Ahithophel says this, okay, we're going to take a ragtag group of people and we're going to hunt David down and we're going to kill David and only David. The only thing that matters is that we kill David. We're going to kill David, then you're going to be the king. It's all good. Well, Hushai is David's uh, double-crossing internal spy. David had sent Hushai to go back to the city, and he says to Hushai, hey, listen, you can double-cross Ahithophel for me. And so Hushai says, listen, your dad is a good fighter. We can't fight him with this, much pe- with this size of an army. We need to get all of Israel. And so let's take the time to collect all of Israel to go and fight him, and then we'll fight him in big fashion rather than some you know, small special forces kind of fashion. And Absalom listens to Hushai, and Ahithophel goes home and kills himself. And it's like, okay, what's happening there? Why is Ahithophel so upset by that one thing? I don't really understand, but let's just keep going. Here's the next part of the plot. So Absalom is going to die next, okay? And David is going to mourn. But let me give you just a little bit of that story. So what happens is that Absalom then waits for the army to get bigger, and then he takes his big army of Israelites, and he goes to attack David. But meanwhile, Hushai has been passing information back to David in secret, and so David's been getting this information. Specifically, the messengers have been the priest's sons. And so they go back to David, and they give him all this inside information. And so David now knows everything that's going on, and it's easy for him to fight. And so he's ready to fight, but Joab, and the other soldiers say to David, nope, you're not going to fight with us. You are not going to fight with us. You're too special. You're too precious. Maybe they also knew he was getting weak. I don't know. But they said, David, you're staying back here. We're going to go fight for you. And so then Joab goes out and he fights and easily wins. Absalom's army is nothing against Joab. It is an easy victory, but many, many people die. And then Absalom starts running away. He jumps on a donkey because everybody knows that's the best way to escape a a battle. I don't know what his thinking is, but he's on a mule. He's riding a mule. And then we find out how Absalom dies. And this is where that hair thing comes back in. Check this out. 2 Samuel 18. Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. Okay, he met David's men, so now he's trying to get away. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. 
He was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept on going. This is in the Bible, folks. I love this. This is like, you just picture it in your mind. This guy is riding a donkey. He's supposed to be the king. Why is he on a donkey for crying out loud? Give the guy a real horse. Put him in a chariot. He had 50 chariots. What is he doing riding on a mule? Maybe he's trying to sneak away. Maybe he's scared and he's trying to escape and he figures no one would expect the king to be riding on a mule. He goes underneath an oak tree. That seems incredibly stupid. His bouffant is somehow so big that it catches in the tree and he's hanging there in midair by his hair. I just really want to see that one of these days. Like I want to, I want to see this scene of Absalom just, you know? And so then, check this out. This is what happens next. When one of the men saw what had happened, he told Joab, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. He leaves him there. He goes and he tells Joab, hey, Joab, you're not going to believe this. Absalom's out there. He's hanging in a tree by his hair, midair. And Joab is like, I'm not wasting any time with this. The silliness is over. And so this is what Joab says. Joab says, I'm not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And 10 of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him. I don't know when he died, if it was at the end of all this or somehow in the middle of all that, but Joab stabs him three times with javelins, and then these other people come up and they just whack at him. It's like pinata party Absalom. And I tell you, now Absalom is dead. And maybe this whole thing is over, right? But it affects David incredibly deeply. See, before the battle, David had pleaded with Joab. He said, Joab, please spare my son. And Joab does, he's, he doesn't have any time for that. He doesn't have any time to do what David wants him to do. Joab's going to do what he thinks is right. And so he takes Absalom out. And then let me take you to this. In chapter 18, verse 33, the king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway, which means he's in a house. He's in some sort of building. He's not just on the run like, you know, he's in tents or anything. He's actually holed up in some sort of fortress or city or whatever. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. We've seen this a couple times before. Remember when David first became the king? He had the opportunity to kill some of his enemies, and he didn't. He let them survive. And back then, we saw that as a king who wanted peace and who wanted to honor his former enemies and he wanted to show grace to his former enemies. And now we get a different picture of David. This isn't David who just wanted to show grace and peace to his former enemies. This is a David who, for some reason, thinks he's the one who's supposed to die. And Absalom really was supposed to be the king. For some reason, David is in such a dark place that in spite of this massive victory, David is like, no, it should have been me. What's happening with David? This is the guy who kills Goliath. This is the guy 
who we were told was the man after God's own heart. What's happening to him? Well, there's a couple more points in the story that we're going to get. So Joab comes back, and he confronts David, and David then returns. Let me show you this passage. Joab confronts David in chapter um, 19. Joab went into the house to the king and said, Today you have humiliated all your men who've just saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. This is rebuke. This is Joab just going straight out at David and saying, David, you are backwards. You are upside down in this moment. Keep going. It says, you have made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. And so David does. Let's keep going. Joab says, This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come on you from your youth till now. So the king got up and took his seat in the gateway. When the men were told the king is sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. Meanwhile, the Israelites had fled to their homes. This is interesting. When David restores himself to relationship with his people, he goes to the gate. You see that? He goes and he hangs out at the gate. Not deep inside with the palace, out at the gate. That's where Absalom had been. That's where Absalom had earned the hearts of all the people. And now David is getting it back. He's starting to get a little bit of his mojo back, and so he returns. What he does then is he sends a letter out. Let's go to a couple names here. David returns back into Jerusalem, and he's going to send a letter out to all the people that he wants to sort of recover. And the first one is he's making promises to a guy named Amasa. Now, Amasa was the soldier who went with Absalom when Joab and Atai and the others went with David. So Amasa was the head of Absalom's army, and David sends a letter to Amasa or Amasa where he says, I will make you my next general over Joab. What is that all about? Why, why is he going to demote Joab and promote the soldier, the general of his enemy's army? I don't understand that. But he makes this promise to Amasa. Then Shimei comes back, the guy who was throwing the rocks. And he says, David, I'm sorry. And David says, okay, I forgive you. You're fine. I won't kill you. And then he leaves. And then Mephibosheth, the dude with the lame legs, he comes back and he says, Ziba told lies about me. And David says, okay, you can have your stuff back. And then Amasa, he is now getting ready to be the next big king's general dude. And so he's going out to recruit more people to David's side. And Joab finds him on the road. He says, Amasa, how you doing, dude? And Amasa comes up and he gives him a good handshake. They come in for a nice hug. And Joab stabs him in the belly. So Amasa dies. Because Joab killed him. And um, by this point in the story, there's something that you should be thinking about, wondering about. There's a lot of stuff Joab does in this story. There's not a lot of stuff that David does in this story. It's Joab, Joab, Joab in this story. It's not David. And so we get to this part in the story 
And then you think you're done. But there's one more thing. Now, a guy named Sheba, he says, I'm going to be the king. And so he rebels, and he's getting ready to try to be the king himself, but Joab chases him down. Sheba hides in a walled city. Joab comes up to the wall, and a woman goes to the top of the wall, and she yells out to Joab, and she's like, what are you doing attacking us? And Joab says, you have Sheba inside. And the woman says, we'll take care of it. So the woman goes, and she convinces the townspeople to kill Sheba, and they toss his head out over the wall back to Joab, and now we're done. Now the story, take a look at this. It's 2 Samuel 20, 22. I'll put it up here. The woman went to all the people with her wise advice and they cut off the head of Sheba, son of Bichri, and threw it to Joab. So he sounded the trumpet and his men dispersed from the city, each returning to his home. And Joab went back to the king in Jerusalem. Now we're done. Joab has accomplished all this stuff. Joab has saved the day. Then Joab saved the day. Then Joab saved the day. Then Joab saved the day. And David is just back in Jerusalem. And so now the question is, why? Why is this story in the Bible? What's the point? Well, sadly, and this is one of the reasons why I just narrated the whole thing, at no point in the story does the narrator of the story give us the point of the story. You know, there's a lot of times in the Bible where you're reading something and then there, there's a prophet who shows up who kind of gives the moral of the story or the, the woman who told David that thing about God always wanting reconciliation or a priest who says something about the way the word of God should be understood. But this is one gigantic long story from chapter 15 to chapter 20. And did you hear me mention anything that God did? At no point in the story, at no point in the story, are we told anything that God said or anything that God wanted or anything that God did. Now, his name is mentioned. God is absent from the story part way. His name is mentioned. He shows up a few times. David, he's running away, and he's like, if the Lord wants me to come back to Jerusalem someday, he'll bring me back to Jerusalem. And then he walks away, and he goes to the Mount of Olives, where we're told it's a place where people worshiped God. And David says a little prayer to God, and, but he keeps on going, and Ahithophel doesn't seek God, and Hushai doesn't seek God, and Absalom doesn't seek God, and Joab doesn't seek God. God, and none of these people are seeking God. And the whole time, Zadok the priest has the ark of God back in Jerusalem. See, I think the most important thing you need to hear from this story is what's not in the story. And what's not in the story is anything God's doing. This is one of those stories where you get the picture that the people have started to just not pay attention to God. And while the people are just not paying attention to God, God is just letting the people do what the people are going to do. And they're just scrambling around doing stupid stuff all the time. Let me give you sort of the big picture idea of what's happening here. God, in this story, is close to David, but David isn't with God. God is close to David. God has actually been following David out of Jerusalem. The priest, the ark, they are with David as he's leaving Jerusalem. But David pushes them away and continues on doing his own thing. And God is close. He's close to David. God hasn't given up on David. But David isn't with 
God. And here's something we have, we have to learn for every aspect of our lives. If the chain of command is broken between God and the people who are supposed to lead, then the leadership is broken. If the chain of command is broken between God and the people who are supposed to lead, then leadership is broken. What you have is you have a true leadership vacuum. David isn't acting like the king. David doesn't even call himself the king. David refers to Absalom as the king. There's a leadership vacuum. No one knows the right thing to do, the right person to follow. Ahithophel tries his thing and then it doesn't work and so he kills himself and Hushai gets his way and, and Shimei thinks that David is a bad guy but then later Shimei turns around and he's like, David's a good guy and Ziba's playing the politics game and all of this stuff is going on and it's just all this, all this weird little stuff. And it all happens because there's just a leadership breakdown. And so, some lessons. I think there are three sort of practical lessons that we can take from this story. And uh, they, they show up from like three illustrations in the story that hopefully when I say them again, it'll, you know, resonate with you a little bit. The first illustration is David. He's a broken man in a broken situation, and he is reveling in his brokenness. He's doing nothing to solve his problem. He is doing nothing to address his problem. He is just a broken person in his brokenness. And one of the things that is interesting about David is that as soon as he hears that he is being threatened, he runs away. Do you remember he ever did that before? Remember when Saul was trying to kill David and David ran away? Well, back then, that was before David was the king. Now David is the king, but he's reverting to old habits. He's experiencing something that is challenging him, and he's just running away because that's his old habit. That's what he used to do. He used to be the guy on the run, and so he runs. But that's not the only thing that's going on here. You'll notice that David is actually pushing some people away that he should be keeping close. He is isolating himself even more. And on top of that, God is literally with him. The priest and the ark of God are with him, and David pushes them away, which means he's lost hope. Write it down. I have three words for you on this one. It is the temptation of brokenness to isolate, ignore, and to revert. What I mean by that is that when you and I are in places of brokenness, and I know this is true for me, I bet it's been true for you too. But we're in places of, when we're in places of brokenness, our temptation is first of all to isolate. I'm broken. The problem is with me. I don't want to bring anyone else down with me. Go ahead and leave me alone. Isolate. Secondly, to ignore. David is literally the king. He has Joab on his side. Joab can do anything. Joab is the conqueror extreme. Joab is an incredible warrior. No one is his equal back then. He can totally command an army to do anything. And David is surrounded by him, but David is ignoring all of the assets around him because he's just feeling broken. He's under no threat whatsoever. Absalom is no threat to David whatsoever. But David ignores the hope. And then finally, David reverts back to his old habits, his old behaviors. So that's the first lesson, perhaps. The second lesson, I think, comes from the power brokers. As you read through the story, you'll see many people who are just vying for power. 
You know, like remember Shimei at one point in time, he's throwing the rocks and another point in time, he's like, oh, David, forgive me. And Ziba, you know, at one point in time, he's like, it's, it's Mephibosheth. He doesn't like you, David. You should, you should favor me. And then later on, Mephibosheth shows up and he's like, it was Ziba, David. It wasn't me. It was Ziba. You should blame him. And David's like, I don't care. We'll just split the everything and you can each have half. You know, that's how David finally dealt with it. Or there's Amasa who might be in charge, but Joab kills him. And And what we've got here, let me just be frank, is human politics. This is what we've been doing our entire history. Someone has power and someone else wants power and someone uses manipulation or deception or trickery or something to gain power. And I'll tell you this, when you don't have God, all you've got left is power. If God's not part of this picture, all you've got left is power. And sometimes that power comes in the manipulations of politics. Sometimes that power comes in the use of money. Sometimes that power comes in stabbing your enemy in the belly. That power is all you've got left to rely on. And for the people who rely on power, that is proof that they have stopped relying on God. And then one last lesson. And the last lesson is the one that I think is the saddest of them all. Because you got to think about the victims in this story. There are a lot of people dead, a lot of people wounded, and a lot of people hurt. Think about those women who weren't allowed to go with David on the journey. He left them back to tend the palace, knowing full well that he was putting them in a place of jeopardy, and them knowing full well that they were in a place of jeopardy. And then being violated by Absalom the way they were. So strange that Absalom killed his brother Amnon for raping Tamar, and then Absalom repeats the exact same sin that he was so vindictive against before. But those women are the victims. What about all the soldiers fighting on either side of this battle who just were exterminated because They thought they were doing what they were supposed to be doing when it all could have been solved by David just staying in Jerusalem to begin with. What about Ahithophel, David's close advisor, who went off to Absalom? And David could have brought him back. He could have been like, Ahithophel, come back here. There are all kinds of things in this story of people who are victimized by the events of the story. And I want to be abundantly clear about this. God is not in the midst of what's happening in this story. And as a result, people suffer. This is exactly like the book of Judges. Do you remember how the book of Judges ends? It says this. It says, at the end of Judges, in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And right now, David is no king. And Absalom is no king. And so all of a sudden, once you get to the place where there is no king, once you get to the place where the chain of command from God to the king to the people, once that's broken, you now have just chaos. And so everybody does what they think is right, and people suffer. And so I'll leave you with this last thing. A leader who doesn't seek God is dangerous. A leader who doesn't seek God is dangerous. 
I know it's a long story. I know it's a complicated story. And I know none of these, none of these points that I'm making at the end have like a Bible verse we can take out of context and be like, see, that Bible verse says that you should never elect a leader who doesn't follow God. I can't say that. I can just draw this general principle for you. I can just draw this general principle that says any human any human with any power who doesn't have a connection with God, who isn't a person who's seeking God, that is a dangerous person because you put power in the hands of a person who doesn't have God and you have danger. That's the way the world has always worked. But if you have God, you don't need power because he's up to something. And so I want to close it out with just asking you to spend a few moments in reflection. And I don't know what your circumstances are. I don't know what your situation is today. But I'm going to ask you just to reflect for a little bit and ask yourself this question. Ask God to speak into your heart the answer to this question. Ask yourself, which character in this story am I? Am I David, a person who's experienced some woundedness and I'm now in the midst of isolating myself, ignoring the hope that's around me and revisiting old mistakes? Is that me? Am I the David guy who's broken and is just wallowing in my own brokenness? Am I Joab, the warrior who's just going to make it all right the way I think I should make it right? And I'm just going to stab whoever I need to stab. I'm going to deal with whoever I need to deal with because all I got left is power and I'm going to make sure I use this power well as much as I can. Are you Shimei? You got nothing going for you, but you'll throw rocks at the people who have something going for them. Are you Zeba? a guy who's looking for an opportunity to get any bit ahead that he can. I don't know who you are in this story, but I want to give you a couple moments and just quiet you and God in prayer and say, God, what would it mean for me to truly have you be the Lord of my life? What would it mean for me to truly hand my life completely over to you? God, which of these people do I most follow after right now? Where do I need my healing? How do I need to reclaim the fact that God, you are God and I am not? Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.